The Pinball Network is online. Launching The Pinball Show. Pinball is a game of skill. For some, it's a passion and a lifestyle. It's time for The Pinball Show. It's pinball with personality. Yes, that's right. We're back with another The Pinball Show interview series, episode five. I'm your host, Matt Morrison, and I'm still alive and kicking. Sorry for the delay, but I've got a great episode lined up for you with none other than MXV himself, Mike Venacore from Stern Pinball. Out of all the games that have seen a boost in price and popularity, Stranger Things may be one of the biggest underdog comebacks in the Stern catalog. We do a deep dive at the game, its code, and the team behind it. So without further ado, let's dive in. One thing I thought it'd be cool since we've heard, you know, kind of your origin story, how you got to to Midway Games and Valley Williams is you're doing a lot of the field testing for for Williams. Was there any um, interesting things like games people maybe gravitated towards because you were like placing them in the arcades? I was always curious, like, was there was there one game that really stood out or any funny test stories? I mean, the obvious answer would be the Mortal Kombat games. So I remember going to like when we put Mortal Kombat 3 on test at Diversion, seeing like this gigantic crowd because people were really excited like and anticipating that game because number two was such a smash hit. You know, that was probably the biggest game of like the 90s would be Mortal Kombat 2. So the audience was just massive for number three. And uh, pinball wise, when we put Revenge from Mars on test for the first time at uh, Just for Fun, the, that was the biggest crowd I'd ever seen around a pinball machine in my entire life. People came from like out of state to come <laughs> like to come see that thing for the first time because we, which was not typical for us, we announced when that game was going on test because we wanted it to draw a crowd, you know. So we're like, hey, this weekend come see it for the first time, you know, this whole new pinball two thousand thing, and it was like it was unbelievable the amount of people that showed up. Like that was, like, I'll never forget it. Like you know, like I said, for pinball to see to draw that kind of audience in like 1999 like it was unheard of when you were running tests i mean it the operators back then were were pretty veteran you know what i mean they had been running arcades for a long time what was the split at that point you know between how much a video game like mortal kombat 2 or 3 would earn compared to say like you know attack from mars or medieval madness or or any of those games at its lowest pinball was probably making 10 percent of the weekly earnings of a video game, I'd say. Right. Um, it was, you know, there were some pretty dark years and the tail end of the nineties, as far as pinball earnings went, um, locations weren't always the best about taking care of their games, which in turn meant people were less willing to drop their tokens or quarters into them because nobody wants to walk up to a game that doesn't work right. And the same thing holds true for video, but they require a lot less maintenance. Right. So, um, the reason why I have pinball machines in my house and I started filling my basement up in the nineties was because I got sick of like going to go play pinball on location and 
the games were not kept up well and they didn't work right. And I didn't want to waste my money on like a subpar experience. You know, like I wanted to play the games as they were intended to be played fully working and clean. That was a big part of it was people's interest in pinball at that time was low. People's interest in video games was very high, but also the arcade business as a whole was, was shrinking rapidly because the console game market and the internet and computer games was really taken off. You know, like there was finally the experience at home that looked as good as the arcade and people stopped going out. There was more competition for people's entertainment dollars than there used to be, especially with like the advent of the internet and like the PlayStation one was like the perfect example of like, now you get the same experience at home or sometimes a better experience with these deeper, you know, bigger games. I always thought that was interesting for pinball because, you know, Adam's family was kind of the pinnacle of sales. And I, I talked to one operator in particular that bought four of them. And I was like, what was it about that game that, you know, why did you buy four of them? And he was like, dude, they just earned like crazy. Like it didn't matter where I put them, they would just earn. And I always wondered what it was about that game in particular. Was it just the right time, the right license and the game itself? Just like a perfect storm. That was before the mid nineties. So I'm trying to think when Mortal Kombat one actually came out that, you know, Adam's family was 92. So maybe it, it just kind of snuck out the door before video got really huge in the arcades. Adam's family. It's funny you mentioned that because if you were, if one of your questions is what's your favorite pinball machine, I'll give you the answer of Adam's family pretty much every time. Wow! And for as cliche of an answer as that is, there's a really good reason why that was the number one selling game of all time, and it was like you said, a perfect storm of. It was a fantastic license at at a time when pinball was enjoying a resurgence because you know, just a year or so prior, like new technology with dot matrix displays came and so pinball looked different than it did in the 80s um you know a really popular movie and uh the theme integration was was beyond perfect for the you know for that game <laughs> yeah it was it was amazing theme integration they got a lot of custom call outs from the from you know from actors from the show and it was just a great design team i mean you know that was pat lawler's are easily his best game and you know larry demar being the lead programmer and game and rules designer on that thing you know, it was, it was just, you know, they just hit it right out of the park in every way. Yeah. That back to back with Twilight Zone for him. I, I love the theme of Twilight Zone more. So I, I gravitate towards that machine more, but there's gotta be, I think one of my favorite modes in pinball is the, the seance and Adam's family with the knocker in the cabinet. And oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It kind of broke my heart because I don't know if you, you recently saw spooky pinball. They, um, they just sold out Halloween and uh, Ultraman. They released 1750 of those and they were on a podcast and they were like, yeah, we were thinking about throwing a knocker in the cabinet again or different places to kind of, you know, give you that eerie experience with Michael Myers, but they, they ended up not doing it. I'm like, man, somebody's got to bring that back. That was such a cool moment, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm really surprised that that gimmick hasn't been reused in some point since then. Like the only two games I know that used a knocker in the thing, like in, as a, gameplay device versus just a replay alert well you know one was adam's family the other one was cubert the video game you know i don't know any other games that use the knocker for anything else besides replays and specials yeah i, I think it's kind of underutilized of course then again if, if it was used all the time it would become you know monotonous or like not as exciting that's what makes that mode in adams like probably so you know special and that chris graner sound package there's no doubt about it oh yeah chris is high on my list of favorite sound sound engineers you know his work has been fantastic over the years yeah his story 
recording raw Julia from Adam's family is, is, is hilarious. You know, Chris is the character. So that was, I always enjoyed hearing him tell that story. Oh yeah. Adam's family was two years before my time going to work at Williams Valley Midway. And man, I wish I could have been there for when they were working on that thing, just cause it was such a great game. I would love to have been able to just be a fly on the wall in those sessions, you know? Oh, for sure. Back to operators, and I think Lyman actually said this too, that he bought Adam's family as a home game because he he was having such trouble going out on location and finding games that work well, and he was wanting to practice more for tournaments and things like that. What incentive is there for operators to to keep these games? You know, obviously, hardcore pinball people are going to quit coming, but I think they look at it from a general public standpoint that like, ah, most people don't know the difference, you know, if maybe this one switch doesn't work. Or this, that, or the other, because I just went to a larger location where I live. For me, I can understand when something breaks, but if the game's just not fundamentally level and pitched right, it drives me crazy. Oh, me too. Like, I've been known to crawl under games at a location to level them because they were so, so <laughs> off balance at some point. Like, I'm just, I just, and I don't have a level with me. I just try to make it feel better by eyeballing it, you know, or just based off the ball behavior, but I've crawled under my share of dirty, you know, bar <laughs> games and, and, and spun those things to try to le- level it out better. The incentive would be obviously if the games work well and correctly, they're going to earn more, not just among the more hardcore people like us, but just, I mean, if a casual player walks up to the, to a pinball machine and they have a, a less than fun experience, like there's a, you know, a bunch of lights that don't work or switches don't register. The flippers are so weak that when they do, you know, hit a ramp, it doesn't make it up the ramp because the flippers were, you know, right. worn out. Um, they're not, they're not going to be way less inclined to, to come back and put another dollar in that game, let alone like get hooked. Like we all are and, and have that become a regular thing as playing pinball. You know, they won't become big pinball fans or even hardcore players, if they, you know, have a bad experience and it leaves a bad taste in their mouth, they walk away and they're like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. That was a waste. Right. Is is there anything from Stern's perspective, you know, I think Data East maybe used to put a bubble, like a level and a pitch. They had like two, you know, bubble gauges on the game. Has Stern ever thought about doing that maybe to make it a bit easier for some of these guys that are just throwing the games out there? Or I wonder if they would even care anyway. You know, I mean, they did stuff like that in the past, various companies have, and it didn't seem to make a difference. I think that the operators either are going to do it or they're not. Right. And the ones that care, you know, and, and are savvy enough to get it, you know, know like, all right, I got to clean my game. I got to make sure everything works and has, and rebuild these flippers and make sure the lights aren't burnt out. Now, the lights being burnt out is way less of a thing now because of LED lighting. Like, they don't really burn out, you know. Right. So we've kind of solved that problem for the most part. Um, with the lighting at least, which, you know, which is crucial because if your lights burned out and, the, and you're supposed to be shooting a flashing shot and it doesn't flash, then the play feels just dark. So, but the ones that just don't care, just, just don't care. And they, they tend to buy pinball out of necessity, like to appease a location. But what I have noticed in modern days, like with today's operator climate is the operators as a whole that are operating pins now are far more savvy about like, taking care of their games. They're much more proactive about make, maintaining them and keeping them nice in nice shape, you know, for two reasons. One is they'll earn the most money because they play the best. So people have a good experience. They're going to come back to your location and, and become regulars. And two, they figured out finally that the resale value of pinball machines is good. So if you take good care of your routed games, you could sell them after you routed them for a while and still, you know, 
recoup a considerable amount of your purchase price if your game is well maintained and it's not all blown out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the prices have never been higher or in more demand. In your travels, since you do a lot of the, still handle some of the field test stuff, what's the mm-hmm. percentage of, of some of the better locations you go in? I mean, are their games just tip top? Is this something that I'm just kind of running into maybe in my area or, you know, what, what's the breakdown typically when you go out and, and do some of these field tests? You know, I don't, do I go to a ton of locations around here because the the nature of field testing games change so much in the modern day of what we do because in the old days like at Williams we would test games months in advance of shipping them because there was no internet like you could you could put it at an arcade and the locals would know about it but you know it wouldn't be up on a, a website within seconds of you walking out of the door you know and then and then spoil your surprise but we, you know, we still do field testing just in a different way. But the ones, the places I go to around here, much more often than not, they take really good care of their games. Again, like the modern operators seem to get it so much more. But there's still, I'm, I would assume, there's still a percentage of places out there that you know don't take care of their games and aren't cleaning them, and they just set them and forget them. And I don't know if it's some of it's just like the operators don't know, right. or or they don't, you know. Because, you know, some you could have a newer operator that or a guy that's used to just that was running golden golden tea games, you know, for right. years, which your maintenance on that is a bottle of Windex, you know, <laughs> and uh, and sometimes you got to replace the trackball. But um, they didn't have to, you know, it didn't require the kind of rebuilding of things like pinball does. You know, you got to rebuild your flippers after so many months and uh, you got to clean them every week if they get a lot of play. But I think, you know, some of that's just they don't know, like maybe new people that haven't figured it out yet. Or you've just got like the guys that, you know, sadly, there's a few that just they just don't care. And their earnings would certainly reflect it. And then, you know, the players figure out quickly, like, OK, the, these are the good places where they take care of the games. And here's the ones that you, you kind of want to avoid. And it seems to me, too, that the locations that maybe have a full time tech or a tech that comes in like three days a week, if it's a you know really busy location, those are the ones that you can always tell that like they're on top of it. You know, the games are level there, you know, that when they have somebody that is a, re- a regular tech, either works there, or comes in multiple times uh, a week. Those are generally the ones I find that that are the best. Oh, I do too. Yeah. It, you know, I think we're a little spoiled here in, in the Chicago area because we've got places like Logan Arcade that, you know, have full-time techs. And every time I ever walk in that place to check on our games, you know, their techs are working on and cl- they clean the games every week. You know, they're, they have a log book where so customers can write in the book like, hey, I played this game and something wasn't working right. And they check that book like almost every day and and go through the games to make sure that they're working as well as they can be. And like, I will go play games there. You know, I tend not to go spend money on games anywhere because I've got so many in my home. But that's a place that I feel very comfortable walking up and plunking my dollars into their games. because I know I'm going to get a good experience. Yeah, and that's key. Sometimes it it kills me because I'll go in a place and they've got a a lot of games, a lot of pins, a lot of arcades. You know, I'll go play one of the pins and and it's like, oh, man, like if if, you know, if a noob walks up to this and plays it and. For instance, I played a Guardians in, in Groot's mouth opto that that triggers that, you know, you've hit it Groot's mouth to start multiball. It wasn't working. Like, I mean, every once in a while you could sneak one in, it, it would work. But I was like, man, if if a noob plays this, he's like, that doesn't do anything. You know, what's the, well, I'm not going to play this again. 
Right, and and then Guardians, like the eye candy of the game, is Groot. So exactly. if, you're, if that feature isn't working, like there's there's a real big hook. That's something that the casual players really gravitate towards. You know, not knowing the complexities of the rules, like the they want to shoot the balls at Groot, put the balls in there, and start a multi ball. And if that doesn't work, then it's going to ruin the experience. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that that's going to come up with uh, Stranger Things here in a minute because that's kind of the big feature of over the interview here, but. I also want to touch on real quick after your, you know, Valley Midway kind of went down, you, you got back into pinball, but initially it was with, with JJP, but how short was that window? Like what was going on at the time when you were there? Well, so the gap between like, like the end of my time at Midway games, which was early to like spring of 2001 and like my return to pinball, which was 2015. Okay. 2016. Wait, what year is this? 21? 2016, I came back to pinball. So I did console video game design from 2001 till 2009. I worked for a variety of studios. We, you know, working on things like PlayStation and Xbox games um, for, you know, what was the current generations of consoles at that time. So like PlayStation 2, the original Xbox, and then later um, Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. I think there might have been a GameCube or a Wii. A Wii. There was a Wii game in there somewhere too. Um, and then at, after my last run at a studio in 2000, that ended at the end of two, in the fall of 2009, which uh, was a little less than desirable experience overall, I f- figured I was pretty much done with video games as a job, like console game business which just wasn't for me anymore like it's too many long grueling hours for the very little reward you know it was Mm -hmm. like the best way to describe it's more of a young man's game like when you start getting up there in age you know and you start hitting especially like well into your 40s or you hit your 40s and you have like you know family and and other responsibilities then like the idea of living at your job is a little bit less appealing you know, like you, you start to value your free time more. At least that's what happened to me. Of course. And then modern games were kind of passing me by. I wasn't as, as burnt out. So I told myself if I was going to stay in game in the game business, which I kind of had painted myself into a corner, having been in it at that point for about twenty years, it'd have to be pinball because that was really where my passion was and still remained and also pinball was what got me into games period like my first exposure to any to a coin operated game was pinball with my dad when i was about six years old probably as soon as i could reach the flippers he started taking me down the street to this arcade to play pinball when i made that vow i out of necessity worked in the video game business on the coin op side again for a few years and did some other odd jobs not in the game business and then an opportunity came up to go work at JJP in 2016 and I happily took it and I was there for about a year and a half and then um, Stern made me an offer I could not refuse <laughs> right. and uh, and the upside was was greater of her potential for growth that I could grow more and do more things and be more involved in the ways that I wanted to be involved in pinball. The opportunity was there and welcomed you know, for me to do that. So it was a no brainer. Like when I was offered a position at Stern, like it's really where I wanted to be anyway. Right. And so, um, I, I happily jumped over there and not, I, I have nothing negative to say about my time at the other company. I enjoyed it. I still have friends there, but I went, 
I made the move that was best for me and my future. Gotcha. And what, what were they having you do at, you know, at that point kind of in between? Oh, when I worked there, I was hired to, I was the lab. So I would build the white woods and like test fixtures. And then I did like the cabling, you know, like I did the cable layouts for the game. Um, I did it for dialed in. I did not do it for Hobbit. That was done long before I got there. Gotcha. Um, and the lab stuff I knew how to do cause I'd been working on pins for years it, not both for myself and also when I was running the field test thing for Williams at the end, like, you know, I had to maintain all those pinball machines we had on location. And then the cabling stuff, they they trained me how to do that on the job. So, you know, like I said, I enjoyed working there. I still like those people there. You know, I consider all the people I know that are still my friends. And when I see them, you know, we always, it's always fun to catch up. But, you know, I went, I, I just went to what was a better fit for me in, in, in a lot of ways. Sure. And it's hard to argue with just the powerhouse that Stern, you know, when you came into Stern at that point, uh, what was on the line? Uh, I started right. Batman had just begun shipping. Like they showed Batman at that same pinball expo. And then that was pretty much in full production when I started. And Aerosmith was right behind it. Like, I think we started shipping Aerosmith a month or two after I started at Stern. Yeah. And, and ever since, you know, even before that, it's been kind of a huge rocket ship just taken off. I mean, I had, you know, John Rothermel on the show and did he retire? No, no. He's oh, still okay. Was. Okay. Cause I, yeah. I saw, um, you know, you guys brought Tom Capera in-house instead of contract and right, uh, right. yeah. And I was like, John was telling me that, you know, he's getting close to retirement, but not quite there. I was like, oh man, did he already make the move? No, no, no. John's still, he's still with us. I like John a lot. He's a good guy. Very talented. Yeah. So I like to use a lot of wrestling analogies in my life because I also <laughs> worked in pro wrestling for a number of years. Really? Um, so if you're a professional wrestler, like typically you want to go work for the WWE because they're the biggest game in town. They're the major leagues, you know? So it was no different for me in this industry of like, well, Stern is like the major league, you know, the WWE of pinball, like they're the, the top company. So like, why wouldn't you want to go work there? You know, because they're like, you know, like I said, that's major league. So, and I also had the luxury and the good fortune of a lot of our department um, were ex Williams guys that I knew and worked with, you know, in the old days. So it really was like coming home and it was the first job I ever had in this, in this industry where when I went in there on my first day, there, there was none of that new job nervousness. I walked in the door I saw, I saw everybody and I'm like, wow, I'm home again. Like, it just felt like this is where I was supposed to be. That's so cool. And and when you started, I mean, it seems like as you've went along, they're like, they give you another hat, you know, it's like, oh, Michael handle that Michael handle this, you know? And, and I welcome that because when I really like a job, I'm very proactive in like trying to be helpful in any area I can outside of what my normal job is, because I like to learn things. And I like to be more useful and I'm really passionate about about what I do, especially here at Stern, that I always want to be involved and help in any way I can. And also just to grow my job. And then selfishly, part of it is also job security. The more valuable you make yourself to a company and the more you can offer them, the more likely they are to keep you around, you know? Sure. And, uh, and, and I absolutely love working at Stern and everybody I work with, and I want to do it for the rest of my years on this planet. The, I knew going in that there would be more opportunities to grow what I do and not just be like, you know, stuck in one lane and it's grown faster and, and wider than I would have anticipated. And I couldn't be happier for it. Like I've worked really hard for the company and, and it's paid off and them trusting me 
to like, hey, we're going to send you to these pinball shows to basically be a face for this company at these enthusiast pinball shows. And we trust you to be that kind of voice and face at these particular events. And uh, I mean, that, that to me, that's a huge honor that they have that kind of faith in me. And they, they think that I'm an asset of like, we can send him to this and we know that he'll represent us well. And, you know, and, and people like to interact with him. That's true. Yeah. I actually met you at a Texas 2019 um, Munsters was kind of the, the hot item on the show floor. Yeah. Yeah. And we had the Munster mobile there and, uh, and, and yeah. And Eddie Munster was there. Yeah. And uh, you definitely uh, served the company. Well, I, I took a pretty good beat down on Munsters against you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Did I still give you a prize? Did you challenge me for a prize? No, there was, it was actually a little kid that was playing on your team. And I think it was me and Greg bone on another. And uh, obviously we gave the little guy that like a translate or something, whatever it was, I, but yeah, we, yeah, you gave it to us pretty good. Um, oh yeah. That, that really, I really enjoy that part of the job. Like, traveling to these shows because I like meeting the people that are playing these games because they're people that are just like me. Like I grew up in an arcade and my career is what it is because of how passionate I was about games. And it's very rewarding to me to be able to speak to people that buy these games, play these games, love these games and hear like what they like and don't like about them. And then when they come to me with any kind of compliments, it's just like, it's so humbling and, and it brings me such joy of like, this team that I'm part of on these various teams for these games, like we made something that made that person come up to me smiling to tell me how much they liked what something that we did. Like I can't imagine, I can't explain like how rewarding that really is when people come up to you and say, thank you for the fun that I have in this game that you guys made. Yeah. That that's, that's gotta be gratifying as your role there. Now that you're, you've been associate game developer for quite some time, uh, mm-hmm. Are you handling more of that? You would say. I mean, obviously, you still do the shows with with COVID finally ending. Um, I'm sure I'm going to see you at some of the shows, but are your hands more and more in in the code and maybe help sculpting the games? So it really varies by project and by team. So I still also head of all of our software testing. So that's still a big chunk of my job too. It just keeps, like I said, like you said, I just keep getting more hats, and and I welcome. I'm like my head's getting big enough now where I can fit all these hats. So, um, so it really varies from team to team, you know, like a game like Stranger Things, that was my largest design contribution. And let me preface this by saying, I don't, I'm not a programmer, so I do not write any code. Although I did do light shows for the expression lights on Led Zeppelin, but that was, you know, oh, cool. that was taught, that was taught to me um, I'm not a programmer, so like I can't sit down and program rules to a game. But I work very closely with the leads who do the lion's share of the programming, and I work with them like on gameplay stuff to sometimes to help design the rules and the you know of how the things are. Sometimes just to tell them what I think is fun and what is not fun. Sometimes I'm just looking for issues. It really varies, but as time has has gone on my relationship with every lead has just gotten better and better where they are more trusting and, and, and respect my opinions more where they ask me now more for input when it comes to like helping design some rules here and there more so than ever. And again, it varies like a guy like Keith doesn't need my help. He's got it out. He gets it all figured out and he designs his own rule. He's very unique in that aspect, you know, but where like Lonnie and I have a really good collaborative relationship in recent times, especially on Mandalorian, like Dwight has involved me more in being, you know, part of the team 
of like where we designed things very much as a group for that game. And it, I think it turned out fantastic for it. Like, you know, we have a good group of really skilled, talented guys. So any input I can offer, I'm happy and honored to do it. And it, it's up to the lead of what they need. And I'm here, I'm here to like basically serve them of whatever I can do to help bring the most fun out of their games. It seemed like with Stranger Things that it, it was definitely kind of like between you and Lonnie and Brian, you, you had a lot of skin in that one. I mean, it was almost, I could tell in some of the early interviews, like it was really your baby. You know, you were really proud of that game. Oh, absolutely. It was really, that was a unique one where from the get-go, Brian decided, I want this to be a three-man design team. I want it to be himself, Lonnie, and me. And he said, like, I want you as involved in these rules as, as us. Like, I want it to be a three-man team. And that was kind of unique because usually it's like, you know, you got the, you get your play field designer and you got your lead software engineer, you know, who does the lion's share of the game rules and gameplay design. And then, you know, there's input by many people on the team too but those are usually the two dads of the game and in the case of stranger things we had three dads it was you know brian lonnie and myself and uh i really was honored when brian asked me to to be in that role and uh and i loved the theme so i couldn't have asked for a better project to do that on and i am very proud of how the game turned out and i think the three of us really had great chemistry where our strengths complemented each other where we each brought something unique to ourselves to the equation and and then the you know and then the chemistry and the balance was really good as a result like we really gelled well as a, as a three-man unit yeah for sure and i picked up a pro recently and um just to give the listeners an idea of if you want a mode game i did a tally there are 25 total modes not counting the two upside down hurry ups 12 regular modes three demo dog five Demogorgon modes, four wizard modes, and a, a mini wizard modes, and one main wizard. I mean, in the, <laughs> I mean, what was the thought process of like, let's put as much content from season one and two into this game? Was that the goal? I mean. Yeah. You know, when you look, put it on paper, and even when we put it on paper, like it was a lofty goal. And then like, you know, there were some people who were like, when we, when they just looked at the pure numbers are like, what the heck? Like, how, how are we going to support that? You know, that's, that's un, an unbelievable amount of stuff. But when we took into account, like the length of what our modes were, you know, and stuff, we did, we thought it was pretty manageable in the end it was, but it was still a monumental task, even with the, the efficient way that we work. So, you know, I think especially with Brian's first game back, like we really wanted to, to, give people their money's worth and there was so much good content in that show to choose from like we really struggled to narrow it down to that to, to the data that you just read to me like it like there were like we had to make hard choices of like okay do we want this one or that one knowing that we loved them both but we couldn't support like that much stuff like what can we which is the better one for pinball we got it down to the stuff that we really like, but it was a monumental amount of work. That's for sure. But we wanted to give the, you know, the, that game long legs and really, you know, we wanted to, every game to have long legs and people that feel they get their money's worth. But that property I think was special to the three of us. Cause we are all three very big fans of the show. Oh yeah. Phen phenomenal show. Just couldn't, I mean, Brian is just two for two at Stern with the killer themes, you know, especially from an operator standpoint. Was it a bummer? I mean, you guys released the game and then COVID is just bam, hitting everybody. You know what I mean? Like it was that game that just kind of got swallowed early on by COVID. 
And then, you know, there was, there was a bit of the, the pin side crowd that was coming out saying, Oh, it's, it's too much like attack from Mars. And there was, it kind of got smothered by the two things, COVID. And then some of the hardcore crowd that, that just didn't give it a chance. Was that hurtful for you guys? Or did you guys still see the sales there and, and the feedback that was positive that maybe we didn't see on the consumer end? Yeah. So before COVID happened and location shut down, like we were getting glowing reviews from operators about how great the game was earning for them. They're like, this is one of the best earning pins we've had in years. We knew it would be a strong location game because that life, that property has such a, a wide audience, like, you know, male, female, many age demographics, you know, it's not like an old, an old man's rock game, you know, rock band pin. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not a kid's theme. It's like something that like people my age and then, like for example, like I'm I'm 51 years old, and my ex-wife and I loved Stranger Things, and my stepdaughter, she was you know 16 at the time. I think that the first episode, the first years came out, and she loved the show, and her friends loved the show. So I mean, there's like multiple generations just that used to live in my household that loved that show and were like binge watched it the minute it went up. You know, both seasons, like you know, couldn't get enough of it. So. And we knew that it would be strong. It would attract a lot of players on locations. What was a bummer was that pinball shows are a lot of ways for the home enthusiasts to really get their hands on the game and play it and decide whether or not they like it. And they were cheated out of that because of the pandemic hitting when it did. Stranger Things went to one show, which I didn't even get to go to because I was in the hospital at the time. And then... A week later, you know, I get out of the hospital a week later, then the world shuts down and all the pinball shows that that I already had tickets booked for to go appear at to promote Stranger Things and have the game there all got canceled. So so it's been it took a while for the word of mouth to spread. And now I'm starting to see the change (laughs) in in like the Internet audience really warming up to it. Yeah. Yeah, this thing, it's its probably had one of the longest burn time. Like Deadpool, hardcores, it got panned early, Guardians, and then they had this resurgence fire. And we're seeing, like, if you look at the secondary market on LEs on Stranger Things, $11,000, $12,000, premiums, eight, dollars $9,000. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, you can't find the uh, UV kit anywhere. It's been gone for a while. I know that a small batch of pros are going to come out maybe August, September. Do you know, is the plan to discontinue the game or, or are we going to look at maybe making more premiums later? Or what do you think? I, I honestly do not know because I still work from home. So I'm no longer privy to what we have on the production line at any given day. Like I don't walk through it every day like I used to. And I'm not spending any time with the sales and marketing guys, right. you know, like, talking to those guys to know what's going on. So I'm sorry to say I can't answer that. Like, because, yeah. you know, I've been so detached from that part of our business for the last year and a half sure. that uh, I don't get to see what's happening in, in there in my basement, you know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, I heard they're going to make some more UV kits to kind of satisfy the demand that's out there. And, and the topper's awesome. Uh, I'm hoping we'll see some more of those. I just, you know, it would be such a shame for, the legs to get cut out from under this thing because people early on were saying, you know, ah, the code's not really too polished, but I went back and looked from uh, the game came out version uh, 0.75. Now we're at 1.02. I mean, really 
all the modes were pretty much in there at the beginning. It's just you guys went in and really polished them up by the time 1.02. Was there something I was missing there? Do you think that really turned it around on this game? Uh, or do you think people so, finally just I, got their hands on it? Well, I think like when we shipped it, you know, the code was a little early and, and guardians was very much the same way. Um, you know, guardians came out with some fairly early software and then it took us, you know, a number of months to get it up to, you know, to, to complete and people's, uh, attitudes on that game changed, you know, when we got it to like a certain point. So in the case of Stranger Things, like the wizard modes weren't in at the time that it shipped, but the main modes were were most were largely all in there, not in their final states. And then I had come up with the drawings thing like early on in our design, but you know we didn't implement it until close to the end because of of the priority that we gave you know, different gameplay experiences, like what are the most important things that are the closest to the start button? You know, we have to focus on the, the stuff that everybody's going to see first, and then we'll put in the deeper stuff later, which is why the wizard modes came in a little later than everything else, because people won't see that as quickly. Sure. And it'll take them a while to get good at it. So the vision was always there for what the game became. It just, you know, it took, you know, some amount of time for us to get it all implemented. I think really, like, for me... Once we got the wizard modes in, and especially when the drawings feature came in, I think that kind of like that weaved it all together in in the way that we had envisioned it. And I think that's when people really started warming up because, you know, as a player for me, I my input of, of design, I never want to see people play a game one way. And that's like, that's the thing, you know, right. like you just do this, like Demolition Man was a good example of uh, all you did was play multiball all day, you know, and, and there was that was the thing. And then, uh, and nobody played, cared about the modes. Like I had a game, I had that game in my house for years and I sold it because I got bored because the only way to put up big scores on my game was to just do the thing. So I wanted, and I never liked any kind of game where people just timed out modes. It always bothers me. Like if I see people just trapping up and waiting to, to run out of time or they don't want to play a mode, then, then I feel like something's wrong with the game. Like it needs to be an incentive for people to play the modes that I want them to want to play them. So they need to be, you know, engaging, but there needs to be a reason of like, I want to do well in this because I'm going to get something that's going to reward me. So for me, that's how the drawings thing came to be. And also the fact that the mode points play into your end of the ball bonus was also very, very calculated. That's something that, that Lonnie and I did together on Guardians as well. My criticism was always like, I've got no reason not to tilt on this game. I've gotten, I'm not going to lose anything. Like I'm going to tilt every ball to try to save it because what am I going to be out like a couple thousand points, you know, like it's not going to, it's not going to make me beat somebody that I'm close to if I'm competing. Yeah. I was going to, was actually one of my questions. Uh, whose idea was it? Because the big scores aren't reliant on the burn it back two X it's, it's reliant on actually playing the mode, staying alive and not tilting to get the huge bonus. Cause I've had some monster bonuses on this thing. And I'm like, it's one of the only games where I'm actively like not canceling the bonus. I'm watching it, you know, like, Oh man, it's going to be huge, you know? Yeah. So honestly, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it was a perfect storm of the three of us because I drove a lot of that idea with Lonnie of I want an end of the ball bonus that makes me never want to tilt. And I want a reason to play modes. Like I don't ever want to time out a mode. I want, I don't ever want to see anybody time out a mode on competition. I want them to play them and I, and, but get, I need a reason to play them, you know? So like, give me a reason. And yeah. um, so Brian, when he did games at Williams, 
I remember because I owned these games, Shadow and Indiana Jones, I noticed when I owned those games that if I played the modes and did particularly well, I got pretty good end of the ball bonuses that were like game changing events. Like, wow, like I want to play these modes. Like, you know, like I don't want to just want to shoot like drain or in the middle of them or just time them out. Yeah. And and Shadow is very much the same way because Brian did those two games back to back. I went through this with Lonnie just on the bonus alone, not so much the modes, but on Guardians, I'm like, give me a reason not to tilt. Like on Aerosmith and Kiss, like I got nothing at stake. I, I can't remember if the two of us or one, you know, which one of us came up with like the end of the ball bonus. I know I pitched for some of it, but together we worked on like figuring out the sweet spot of like what's the magic formula of like what's lucrative but not crazy, you know? And yeah. we, Lonnie and I went through many iterations on Guardians before we released that feature, before we got it right. Like, we had it way too high at some point. It was like, I think at one point we started with, you get the same points again. And then it just and it just got way out of hand. And then I'm like, no, we got to dial it back. And then I forget where we settled on it on Guardians, but we had to settle on a lesser value percentage-wise in Stranger Things. And then the drawings was like, I pitched that from day one. Like, I want the drawings to be something you collect. And Lonnie came up with a jackpot for like, you you know, you're building a jackpot that you get for the wizard mode bonuses. Oh yeah, that's um, awesome. I wanted them to influence the bonus and the wizard modes, but I didn't really have an idea of what I wanted the influence to be. I was thinking, oh, okay, it's shot based. And then Lonnie's like, no, I'm going to put him like in escrow. And then you get that, those points again you know, when you start a wizard mode. And I thought that was a fantastic idea on his part. So like I said, it was very much like we all contributed, like one of us would have a German idea. And then between the three of us, we ironed out the nuances to get it to what it was. Yeah. And and I remember when I was talking with John uh, Rothermel, I was asking him like, how close was it? Was the projector going to get pulled? Because I, I know there was a lot of trouble getting it to work. You, But it makes such a striking, you still, you have such a solid pro in this game. And then you get these cool upgrades with the premium. It, it's it's some games, you know, people look at it and they go, well, am I really getting that much more with the premium? And this game, it's definitive. You know, I mean, you get the projector, you get the mechan- the ball lock on the back panel. It's a striking difference with that projector. What was your thoughts on going through and programming the difference between, you know, the pro and the premium? And, and were you happy with the projector in the end? I was very happy with the projector in the end. Yeah, like, when Brian you know, came to us with that and pitched that projector thing, we all thought, wow, what a neat idea, you know, because it hadn't really been done before. The real challenge was finding something that had the right resolution, the right brightness, and the right footprint, you know, to fit under the apron. And man, he spent a considerable amount of time, you know, hunting around the world <laughs> to find the right one. And he did. And the first time Lonnie puts together something on the screen and then Lonnie went above and beyond like what the scope was about like, Hey, you know, I could do, I can adjust these things all different. Like I can split it up into segments. So you could, you could change the, the, you know, you could kind of shift it over up and down, you know, like to line it up just right. And I can run different things in different sections. Now we're just, we were just blown away by the stuff that Lonnie had come up with to make that thing work in the way that you guys all see like and then it was the same with the UV lights. Like we had the UV light thing, and the and when Lonnie called Brian and, and me into his office to show us his first pass at it, like our jaws hit the floor. We're like, "Oh my god, this is amazing, Lonnie!" You know, like he nailed it from the get go of like how he when he was blinking them in time with the sounds, and it was just like 
it was like a home run from like his first time at bat when he when he when he set those things up. You know, that's a, that's one thing, and Dwight's really good at setting up moments, but Lonnie got no credit on this game, like when the multi-ball starts, and as soon as that van hits the ground, the trough kicks a ball out into the shooter lane. That was 100% Lonnie, Lonnie's design of that those moments. He is He really, like, is amazing at his eye for the detail and eye for presentation. It's like, it's second to none what he does with like this choreography in games. And that's a perfect example of like, he knew right away, he goes, I'm holding the ball until that van crashes. And that's when I'm going to kick the ball and shake the shaker motor on the thing. And he timed it out. Like he spent a lot of time getting that thing just right. I'm a decent player. So, you know, so I'm, I have a bad habit of like skipping, you know, segments once I've seen them a couple of times, but yeah, this game in particular, I like the show so much. I find myself watching the segments, you know, more than, than other games, but I think I had the game maybe a week or so, and I was letting the multi-ball play out. And then it clicked that I was like, that van just hit the ground and the ball kicked out. I was like, that is genius. Like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of those in the game. I mean, there's really some really great choreography in the game that, I mean, I just don't think he got enough credit for. I, I would agree. Like, I love, I absolutely love working on games with Lonnie. I love working with every team. There's, this is the only company I've ever worked at in my 27 years in this business where I can genuinely say I like every single person I work with on every in every aspect. Like it's uh, it's unbelievably rare to say that at any place. No matter what you do, you know, you always find people you don't like or you you don't get along with. And in this case, like I genuinely like every person, and I really feel lucky to work with such a great talented group of diverse individuals. I especially like working with Lonnie, not just for the collaboration I have with them that we've built up over the years of doing like five games together, but the, his eye for detail, it never stops amazing me. He always finds some way to like, to blow me away with something, some like nice little touches, you know, like the flourish he does in, in his presentation and his, and, and his choreography that just, it always amazes me. He never stops, you know, blowing my mind. When are we seeing Lonnie again on a game? Um, I can't say, but I mean, you know, he he will definitely be, you know, he's a, you know, he's in the queue to do more stuff for sure. I mean, Lonnie's a huge major asset and he's been he's programmed more games than anybody in the history of this business, uh, pinball wise. Yeah, I was gonna say he's been with you know, from Data East, what, to Sega to Stern. I mean, he was Lonnie has been at this company for its entire run, like including like it's like the beginning of its inception. He helped, he helped them get started. That's amazing. Um, yeah, he's a, a wealth of knowledge and experience and, you know, super nice guy on top of it. So let's talk about this game has a lot of like switch based modes, but the way it utilizes them is, is a lot of fun, like quarter hunt. You can build up the switch and then rip the spinner or get it into the pops. Um, the Morse code mode. Yeah, so the uh, it's it's a mix, but Lonnie in particular really likes to feature different parts of a playfield in his game modes. He's a very big advocate, and rightfully so. Of like, I don't want everything to just be shoot ramps, shoot the orbits. Like he likes to have a sort of theme to his modes. Like you know, like we when when he and I are talking about what we're gonna have in various games, he's like. I want to, he's like, I want to have a ramp mode somewhere where, you know, the object is shooting ramps. And then this one could be like a switch based mode, which would be like your quarter hunt, you know? And then, you know, between the three of us, we find how to tune them and what little spin we can put on them to make them feel a little, you know, kind of fresh. Cause you always have your staples and pinball rules, you know, 
of, you know, basically a lot of it's shoot the flashing arrows, but he likes to kind of theme them based around the mechanics of a game, which I like. That was something I liked about like a game like Theater of Magic was really good at here's your ramp mode. Here's your mode where you're interacting with pop bumpers. You know, here's a mode where you got to shoot the captive ball. You know, Lonnie likes to do that in a lot of the games. And, and I like that too, because then it makes the modes feel different from each other and not just like chase the flashing arrow. Yeah, I got to agree. The to have that many modes and all of them, like I could, I could tell you the shots almost verbatim for any mode. You could pick a mode. I could probably tell you what you got to (laughs) shoot. Like that's how much I played it, but that's how different they are. It's not like I'm getting mixed up between, you know, one of the 25 modes. I could pretty much tell you what shots to hit in each mode. Um, And that's a, that's a testament to that for sure. My favorite though, and this is another great choreography. It's level five or six in the wizard mode where, um, you uh, you have to shoot it into the pops. The one before it's the spinner on the left, but this one you have to shoot it in the pops. And he chore he choreographs the the scene where Hopper they're trying to close the gate and Hopper's shooting the demodogs off the side of that um, scaffolding piece. And yeah, he, oh that's like uh, it's genius. You know you got the pop bumpers going. He's he's blasting them. Yeah, that was one, that was one hundred percent Lonnie. Like I said, his eye of to detail like. When he showed that to me for the first time, he goes, what do you think of this? I was, again, I was just blown away. I'm like, man, Lonnie, you never stop amazing me. <laughs> Crushing it, Lonnie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a few things I was curious about. One in particular felt like a dummy because I don't know if you know Carl D'Angelo. He does IE Pinball. I, I I don't know that I, I've ever met him, but I certainly know who he is. Okay. He does these like wizard mode runs. I mean, he's like went to every wizard mode and beat it on anything you can imagine just about even some of the most difficult stern, big buck hunter stuff like that. So he does stranger things right now. I've, I've beat stranger mm-hmm. things. I thought I had twice. Yeah. Right? I made it to the wizard mode four times, twice completed yeah. it. However, Carl shot it in the Demogorgon's mouth at the end. He got the snowball dance. I just bashed away at it. Cause I was just excited to beat it. You know, so I'm like flailing all my balls, like just hitting the Demogorgon. So I, it completed, you know, final showdown, but I didn't get the snowball dance. Is that the difference? You have to get in his mouth to get the dance. I can't remember as, as, as sad as that may sound. I can't remember what the final rule was. I or thought, did I find the bug? I'm not, I'm honestly not sure. I think Lonnie was insistent though, that you had to k- get the ball in the mouth this one time. Ugh. And, uh, because early on you had to, that was the only right. way to kill it. And right. then we changed it because some people, you know, were better at hitting it than others. And some people's ramps weren't lined up correctly. So we're like, all right, for the people that might have like, uh, you know, a more finicky game, we don't want to lessen their experience of like, well, you're trapped in this thing forever. So we came up with the rule of like, well, you can bash them for lesser points. For whatever reason, you can't make that the Demogorgon shot. We don't want to handcuff you there and then you'll never see the rest of the sure, game. Sure, sure. Yeah. But I think that if I'm remembering correctly, and I apologize because that that was like, you know, now we're going back, what is like a year and a half? Yeah. Over yeah. a year and a half, right? So I've worked on, you know, four games, I think, since then. Yeah. Um, I'm almost positive he was insistent, like, to get that thing you have to shoot it in his mouth. And because it was the final wizard mode and the final shot, like, like that was that was his uh that was his desire to have it be that so uh well i guess i gotta have some work to do i gotta get back there yeah that snowball dance thing is pretty cool yeah spoiler alert <laughs> yeah. i but, think i think i think the majority of the people the fans of that game know about that mode by this point you know it was funny because i you know i finished it twice and i guess if you bash the demogorgon like i'd been doing 
your ball drains, it actually ends the game. Like, I mean, if you have an extra ball, it will give it to you and you can kind of go back through the modes. But that that sounds like it more like a bug to me. So maybe we might have a, a it's not supposed to end your ball. Yeah, so it definitely I, it kills the flippers once I bash them enough, ends the ball. Yeah. And it and at one time I was on my very last ball, right? So I know it ended the game because it ended the game. <laughs> and then the other right. time it kicked it out into the shooter lane, but it was my next extra ball. Um, okay. So, and then my other two questions would be with uh, Operation Merkwood. Was there any thought to make as you combo the ramps like exponentially more valuable? Because they kind of go up in like million or two million increments. But, you know, if you brick one of those ramps, like there's a good chance you might die. Yeah, I didn't know if it, you guys ever thought about maybe adjusting the scoring on that a bit. Well, so that one is interesting that if you keep the combo going, the value keeps going up. So the the idea being, you know, it, go, it goes up a million like every time, or it goes up at least the first one by a million, and I think it might get up, I don't know, maybe it climbs every one. But if you don't, if you keep the combo alive, it will keep climbing. Right. So I think right. you could get it up to like 10 million a shot or something like that, because Hopper will call out the number of the millions every time he does. Yeah. 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 So that was the, the idea was to keep the combo alive. And that was something that we added to the mode a little farther into like we had the mode already designed and we're like, how can we spice this up a little bit more? We tried in this one to have as, as often as it made sense to have, you know, a way to beat the mode, but then a skillful thing you could do for an added layer of depth to like to boost points to like maximize your points for example like that one the run will where if you do the if you do the mode as a five-way combo you get like a ton of points oh that's cool yeah yeah so that that one was mine like i came up with that one because i'm like man if he's running like i want to do something fast this would be a natural thing for like to if to like if you did it as a combo, like let's, let's just give them a ton of points. Cause it's tough to do it as a five way combo. Oh, yeah, dude. That's like, <laughs> that's insane. So that's tough. why like, not only do you get a ton of points, but you get like a, an additional drawing, like you'll get a drawing just for finishing the mode. But if you do that five way combo, you get another drawing. Yeah. I've, I've honestly, I don't think I've ever completed it as a five way combo. I've obviously had to get a five way combo to get to the wizard mode those times, but um, yeah 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 do, to do it in the mode uh specifically that that's pretty awesome and who doesn't like little easter eggs like that oh yeah i think you get like 40 or 50 million bonus just for doing it that mode as a five-way combo yeah that's significant for sure yeah and if you get that if you get that with the 2x running at you know oh, then you really go to town yeah no doubt but i thought that that might be cool like if in Merkwood, like if you because there was one game in particular i remember like just crushing them, you know, like I never missed, like I just ramp, 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 ramp. And I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if this gave me some stupid bonus, like you're talking about for, for doing so many in a row. And then the other one I was curious about was light the fire, the mini wizard mode. It's mainly up the middle. I was like, was there ever a thought to maybe add some variation to that one? Or what was the thought process on that? So when we designed the wizard modes, it was really important that we didn't want, we had, cause we had so many, you know, it was like compared to a lot of games, like we have, you know, we got the two total isolations, which are like you're on the way to the wizard modes, wizard modes, you know, like we you know tried what? to pay- I didn't even count those. So it's 20. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So we, we, yeah. Cause they're not, there's no inserts for those yeah. in the play field. So yeah. it's misleading. So like, because we had so many modes, like we wanted early on, like we wanted there to be something in front of people, like a goal that that's attainable by every skill level. Right. Sure. So some people just get, get the multi balls. Some people like when they get to the first total isolation, that's a really big deal for them. And that's like a really good game. So 
we wanted to always have something to chase, you know, for every level of player. And as a person that's kind of a casual becomes, you know, a more skilled player with, you know, by practicing and playing a lot, we always want there to be the next achievement for them to get. So um, because we had so many wizard modes, like we really were trying to be mindful of like, we don't want them to just feel like you're playing the same mode six times, you know, every time you get to wizard mode, we wanted them to feel different from each other. So we really would, when we, every time we designed one, the three of us sat down and we looked at, okay, what's the design of our other wizard modes? How do we make this one different and fun? You know, so it doesn't feel like total isolation one or two or, you know, send them back or light the fire. You know, they all had to feel different. So that one became like center, center, you know, center of the play field heavy as a result of like, well, we've done all these other things. Right. Let's, let's put the experience for this one here. Right. Okay, that makes sense. I would say the sound effects and the total isolations are so like, man, it's really good. It's this, you know, kind of eerie background music, but then like this weird, you know, when you hit the jackpot, you know, like this weird kind of, but it just makes the mode because like you're, you, you want to keep hitting those shots to hear that, that funny sound effect. And uh, whoever, I can, did Jerry do this one? Did he do sound design? No, it was uh, Ken Hale was our sound guy for Stranger Things. Yeah, he crushed it. Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely did. Yeah, we, we so all the different sound people we work with, we have a few. Um, again, all huge, like the best guys in the business right now. You know, like we're really fortunate that we've got such a, a talented group of guys to work with. They're, they're all major leaguers, not a bad one in the bunch. You know, it's like you can't go wrong with any of them. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's, you know, bringing Tom in house. Uh, obviously, his work on Mandalorian is just stellar. I mean, from that flip down 180 and then of course on the premium le the the full floating mini play field some unbelievable work there yeah mandalorian was a game for me again where like i thought there was a lot of value physical value to the premium and le versions you know like definitely i thought there's a lot of bang for the extra bucks there of like you said the moving play field i think is really cool i love that little scoop uh ramp gimmick thing that made that feeds the ball back to the left flipper on that one shot on the right, you know, and all the other little nuances, but those two in particular, like are big, like to me, they're game changers, you know, like I much prefer that version of the game. The pro is great too, but if you, if I get to pick, like I'm taking the premium every time on that, on that title and on stranger things probably as well, you know, again, like the projector, you know, was huge. The magnet lock thing in the back was really cool. Um, you know, I thought there was a lot of bang for the buck. I hope you guys make some more premiums because I, I think I'm going to put this pro on route and then, you know, buy a premium for the home because in a home setting, it's just stellar, you know, but at the time, all I could get was the, or the pro and I, I wanted to put some time on it because they were dwindling in stock, you know, they were getting hard to get. So I called Zach and I was like, well, send me a pro. I mean, at least because, you know, this thing, I'm not going to be able to find one at some point. The magnet ball lock is to me on strange on the premium and LE is such a cool bit of eye candy, but also, you know, there's some gameplay elements to that that are unique to it. So you have in the TK multi-ball, you can get a triple super jackpot by locking two balls on the magnet before you collect your super. Whereas on the pro, you can only get a double by locking, by shooting the one ball on the ramp. And then there's the swipe a ball feature which is you can drop those magnet those balls off the magnet and use them as an add a ball in any of your other multi balls, and then at the expense of you now you have to relight and relock those balls, 
to advance your TK multi-ball. So like that again is only on the premium and LE because that's got the physical ball lock there. That's uh that's a cool risk reward. I'd forgotten about that. I love that. That is one of my favorite jackpots to get in, in multi-ball is, you know, a lot of times it's another risk reward element. I'll, I'll have two balls trapped on the left flipper and rather than flipping one up into the saucer, I'll kind of short flip over and try to get that ramp to get the double jackpot because it's so satisfying to get one locked on the ramp and then hit that saucer, you know. I can't tell you how many times I've prematurely ended that multi-ball because I'm trying to set up the triples, you know, the triple super. It's like I could have taken the easy route and take it and just collected the super ball. I'm like, no, I want the triple. Yeah, I would be dying constantly because I'd have to see them all go up there, you know, like yeah, oh, I gotta do it. I gotta do it. Yeah. That's- and then I get mad if I drained a ball before the super's lit and I can only get a double. I'm like, oh, I blew it. You know, I could have had a triple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now I need to get an add a ball. Exactly. Get the mystery. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's funny, like Jurassic Park, you know, everybody loved that moving T Rex head and it's awesome. It's amazing mech. But, you know, I, I own the premium of that game and I like the Raptor pin. Like, I thought that was like, <laughs> like it's always. That Raptor pen is awesome. Like he, he did so much with what, if you look at it, like it's not super complex, no, right? Simple but, but the, effective. But yeah. the, what Keith did with that geometry to make the ball do what it does, like to act the way it does in there was just brilliant. I, I love the, like, honestly, if I could buy a pro with the Raptor pen, I know this sounds yeah. stupid and people are going to like throw me off a roof, but I, I don't know. I just like the the Raptor pen, you know. No, I, like you said, like if you're looking at a feature matrix, that Raptor pen might not seem like a big deal, but when you play it and you shoot balls into it and interact with it, it's like it's worth its weight in gold. Like oh, it was yeah. the first time I shot that Whitewood when he had that Raptor pen in there. I'm like, this thing is awesome. Oh my gosh! When you get to visitor center and you got to trap them, oh man, yeah, I was like, this is fantastic. Like, yeah, it was just again that, that was you know Keith was just brilliant in what he came up with for that thing. With Mando, you know, the move and play field is is incredible. But when I saw that that up down ramp, I was like, it, you know, it almost looks like the diverter on Twilight Zone, but it, you know, it moves faster it's able to catch that shot and return it to the left flipper. I was like, I know I'm going to want that. Oh yeah. So there's the one multi-ball. I think it's pirates multi-ball. The super is in that one. When you get the super lit, it's on a timer and you've got, you know, 20 seconds or 25 seconds to make as many supers as you can, as you can. And you just, so if you can get into a rhythm where you shoot that, that thing and it's feeding it back to your left flipper and you can just keep pumping that thing for super jackpots, you feel like a pinball master. Yeah. And, and I've, I think I've seen it on stream a couple of times. Like when the ball, you know, hits that 180, it has that satisfying like sound, you know, it does. Yeah. Like just that, that, that the sound of the ball hitting that metal and clunking in just the right way where yeah. it's just like, yeah, I yeah. nailed that shot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that. Those noises, like the captain Marvel ramp has a ridiculously long one. Cause it's, it's so crazy. But when you rip that thing, you know, it, just, it sounds like somebody yeah, like, you just, it just makes a sword. It, it just, yeah. It's just something so satisfying. Like, uh, and you know, and, and to go back to, we were talking about Adam's family when you're playing the, the quick multi-ball where you got to just shoot into that, into the, what is that? The crypt, not the crypt. What do they call it? Oh, like thing? the bookcase that opens. Yeah. The bookcase. Yeah. You know, where you got that two ball multi-ball and like, there's something really satisfying about shooting it into that vault, you know, in the bookcase. And it just, that clunks into the back there. And you're just like, yeah. I, you know, like, oh yeah. 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 That's one thing about a twilight zone with the piano scoop or the camera, like, you know, you just, 
rocket the balls in there. It makes this really satisfying, like clonk, you know, like sounds yeah, like, yeah. And, you know, the welds will break over time. But I noticed we don't do that as much in modern pinball because it's such a stoppage in, in the gameplay. You know, you have to wait for it to travel down the subway. I mean, Stern's used some subways here and there, but not to the degree that they were kind of obsessed with at Williams at one point, it seemed like. Subways are, are cool and all, and like I certainly think they got their place, but the one uh, negative of a, of a subway is people, when they lose sight of the ball, it can confuse somebody that doesn't isn't familiar with that particular game. Like the yeah. ball disappears to them, and then they don't know where it's going to come out, you know, because they can't see it anymore. So like especially with a more casual player, like, subways are like hugely confusing because they're like, well, I shot it in there, but where is it? Why did it come out there? Because they didn't see it go from point A to point B. It happened, you know, underneath a piece of wood. So um, it's, I can see how it can confuse people that aren't familiar with how this game plays, especially like newer players. Yeah, that's a good point. That might be one reason why you you would definitely leave them off maybe a pro game for sure, because, you know, it fires out of a scoop somewhere and they lose the ball. They're going to be pissed, you know, like, oh, that wasn't fair. Yeah, exactly. And, and you'll notice like in Avengers, Keith put in a subway, but he did, did something unique, pretty unique where there's a, you can see the ball in the subway, you know, it's got a window in the sure. play field. So you could see the balls in there, which I thought was great. Cause then people know, Oh, I shot it in that thing and it went over there and I'm watching it come to where it's going to get fed back to me. Right. Right. That's, that's a good point with some of the, you know, you were saying just the insane amount of talent, all a listers at Stern, George was on another podcast talking about Deadpool with Joel, uh, just another pinball podcast. And uh, he was saying, you know, September, we've got some some big plans. Uh, I think Tanya was on there. Um, looks like you guys picked up Mark, was it Panacho? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Mark Panacho. Uh, yeah. I, I love, I love Mark. This is the third company I've worked at with Mark Panacho <laughs> and he's, and he's a, and I've been friends with him for just as long, if not slightly longer than I've been in this game business. And uh, he's and he's a huge talent. I just remember him from NBA Jam. <laughs> he was like a secret uh, character, one of the secret characters. Oh, so you know, Mark, he started in pinball at Williams, and then he moved over to video before I got there, and then um, and then we did console video game design together at a studio after Midway got out of the coin up business. But Mark programmed Fishtails, the first Elvira game. Earthshaker, Hurricane, and Roller Games. And then he also did some other work, you know, uh, support work on a couple of other things. But he was the lead program on those five games I just listed. Oh, that's awesome. So is is he coming on uh, to do more system work or um, games? He'll be doing uh, probably more system stuff. But, you know, everybody wears a lot of hats. So he'll go wherever his talents are best used for sure. Right. Um you know, he's, he's, he's got the tool, the tools in his toolbox to do anything that the company would need from him, you know, on, on a programming so- standpoint, he will absolutely do great things with us. Like, you know, that's why we brought him on board. We're all very excited to get him to join us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it sounds like you guys are just keep gearing up. You've got, you know, Raymond and Tim and uh, Tanya and, and yourself. It just seems like the studio, every acquisition is kind of expertly planned and executed and you're bringing you know these guys in that either were or new blood to the industry but are really pinball savvy or you know former williams employees that that have that pedigree that's a big uh testament to the genius of george gomez <laughs> is he is really great at finding and growing 
talent, you know, like George has been in this industry in so many different ways and for, you know, dating back into the eighties. And, you know, he's always amazing me with like how smart he is and like how savvy and how he could get his hands on so many different aspects of what we do. And he knows all about all this stuff, you know, but he's got a great eye for talent. And I'm not just saying that because he came <laughs> he came in and hired me, you know, like I've always, re- I've worked at, you know, this is the second place I've worked at with George and I always had a huge respect for him. I think the games that we're making, is just a testament to the great team that he assembled, you know, he brought us all together and enables us to do what we do. But it almost seems like, is it, are we ramping up just because not only demand and what, what customers are wanting, but is there, is Stern about to go to another level? Uh, when I talked to John, he was saying, I think Harrison had, had recently, he was working on a mech and he was like, dude, it's blowing like everybody's mind. You know, obviously we can't go into titles and too deep into specifics, but is, is that kind of what's happening at Stern right now? We're, we're about to step up to another level. Well, I think that um, the best answer I could give is like, we always are striving to do better and improve and grow pinball to the, to the masses, you know, like we don't want it to become the stale thing viewed as like a stale antique. Like we're always trying to improve and grow the product to keep up with the times and people's interests, you know, like we want it to stay relevant for as long as we're all here, you know, and beyond, like this is something we want to be part of the world, you know, and part of pop culture, like hopefully forever. So, you know, to get people keep their interest in something, you always kind of have to evolve and grow it. So I think we've seen over the last, you know, 13, 14 years, maybe, you know, pinball just steadily growing, like, you know, not just people like my age, you know, in my, in my generation, you know, revisiting it or, or never left it, but so many younger folks playing pinball, you know, so many people buying games and their whole family are playing it. They love kids in grade school playing the thing, they love teenagers playing it. So we're always trying to do what we can to grow and improve the product and have new features and expand what pinball is to keep it relevant and fresh to people and to keep it exciting. Yeah, I wonder if there was, you know, we, we've had booms before. Does Stern have a philosophy of like, okay, we're not going to have another, we're going to try to avoid some huge downturn at all costs. And with the home market being as strong as it is, do you, do you anticipate that this boom will, will continue for a while longer, not just maybe five, six years? I'll tell you, like, I don't really know the true answer to that, but I certainly hope it doesn't, the boom doesn't ever end because if this pinball thing doesn't work out for me, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I don't really have a plan B at this age. So right, yeah. I need, I need it to stick around like just to, you know, so I could keep doing this and I could always keep a roof over my head. You know, certainly nobody wants things to ever get bad or pinball to take a downturn ever again. It's had more than, a, I'd like to hope that it's had more than its lifetime share of, you know, of ups and downs and hopefully the ups stay up for a long time. And we certainly are going to do our best to always make fun games and keep things as fresh and exciting as we can to help ensure that pinball has long legs. Yeah. If anybody's really exposing it and keeping it in the marketplace, it's, it's stern with the pro line. I mean, it does worry me with, you know, what people are paying for toppers and super LEs and, and some of these crazy, you know, a pirates of the Caribbean that was never opened collector's edition sold for over $30,000 at one point. Wow. Um, See, I just, I just can't fathom as the way I enjoy games. Like I couldn't, I wouldn't buy a game to just leave it in a box 
Like, but I only buy games that I want to play and have in my basement that I want to go down there and play games with my friends. You know, I don't look at them as like an investment. I look at them as like, this is an entertainment device that, that I'm very passionate about and brings me great joy. Like I want to rip that box open and set this thing up and play the heck out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's definitely tears to the community now, but it, it's great that Stern is still, you can still buy, you know, a, a pro level game. Uh, and it's not going to cost you seven, eight, nine thousand dollars Right. Yeah. I mean, the operator market is, will always be hugely important to the company because the whole bread and butter of the, of the business was the operator market for so for decades. And it's still a good, important piece of the, of the pie, you know? Right. Like Gary likes to talk about the, how many legs are on the stool and like, you can't have a stool you can sit on if you're missing that leg. That will never stop being important to us. So we always want to make a game for the operators. And that's how you grow pinball in a way too, is that, you know, not everybody has pinball machines in their house or has friends that has them in their house. Like, but if they go to a bar or a movie theater or something and they see a pinball machine, maybe that's the first time they ever see something like that. And they walk up and give it a try and they fall in love just like I did, like, you know, 45 years ago. Yeah, I think we all have that origin story of, you know, maybe you played it as a, the arcades were dying when I was younger and remember playing Adams and, and a few of the games. But then they kind of vanished all at once, like arcades started closing. And, and it wasn't until I was in college and they were unboxing a brand new Simpsons pinball party at like a family fun center. And I was like, holy crap, you know, I couldn't believe they, you know, they were still making them and it was brand new. And, and I, I fell in love with that game, you know, and that that's really kind of, I never forgot about it. And then when I could actually afford a game, I, you know, that's when I started buying them. You know, like from my personal observation of like what you just said about Simpsons just triggered a memory for me. Like it was really like, and I was never not exposed to pinball, you know, like even when things were, not doing so hot. And then Stern, you know, Williams got out of the pinball business and, and Stern was the only game left in town. It was really Simpsons and Lord of the Rings where I saw the shift among like people that I play in pinball league with like these pinball friends of me that are like, you know, big pinball fans like myself. I saw this big shift where a lot of these guys were starting to buy brand new Stern games and putting them in their houses. They weren't doing like I was where you're finding some operator to find a used game and then you, and you refurbish it yourself. They were going and like finding, okay, where's a distributor? I can buy a Simpsons. Where can I buy a Lord of the Rings? Where can I buy a Spider-Man? Like those were the games that suddenly like these guys um, that were buying and, you know, putting these brand new machines in their homes. And I was going to their house to play them instead of going to find some bar that had the newest pin, you know? And that's when I really started like, wow, people are buying new games, not just used ones. And then it just, I just watched it like the slow burn of like when there would be a good title, like one of those come out, these guys were like, I'm buying that game. Like I bought the Spider-Man, you know, I bought Family Guy. Like it was like, it was unbelievable to me. I'm like, wow, like I never thought about it that way. I always like just thought of just buying used games and then it just kept growing from there. One of the guys I bought my, my first game, a taxi from, he, he's like, Oh, I can tell you exactly when the market like got started getting hot. Like the, they turned the stove on, you know, started getting hot was when I, I guess it was Jack maybe went to Gary and said, Hey, I want to make the LE Lord of the Rings. You know, people keep calling me, badgering me about this game. I, can we do another run of it? Cause they reran Lord of the Rings and Simpsons several times. Cause they were, I guess, so popular especially at that at that point absolutely yeah yeah and and uh, he was like when they made that le he's like the market changed you know people knew it was kind of a special game and everything from there it just kind of started escalating up and then you you know you had your 
your Trons and your Metallicas and, and those. Yeah, guys. and they did like the black suit Spider Man with the cool like chrome trim. Yeah, like they that's when suddenly like the market like was there to support like these there's collectors of these things that like they're not just players, but these people are actually starting to collect these things. Yeah, I mean it's a uh, trust me, like we're all very thankful and happy and honored that people like what we do so much that their demand, you know, is so is what it is. Like it's inc- it's incredibly humbling, you know, to realize like, wow, look how many people like this stuff, like like this pinball thing, you know, and uh, and are big fans of what we do. Like that's a huge honor. Like and none of us take it for granted at all. Like we're very appreciative of the fact that, you know, there's an audience here that really likes what we're making. You think going forward, I mean, it, it just sounds, it seems crazy at this point because Gary was interviewed recently, uh, like for the Stern Insider. And, you know, the question always comes up, uh, when are you guys going to vault Lord of the Rings or Tron or any of that stuff? And it's like, he's looking at the camera like, I, I don't know when we're going to fit it in the line, <laughs> even if we were to do it, you know, it it yeah. seems it seems like, yeah, yeah he's, we'll, we'll he's not like, wrong, I guess. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it every any interview with the stern employee it's like yeah we can do it but i don't know when we're gonna do it you know I'm a huge fan of both of those games that's you know i have a tron in my basement i've never owned a lord of the rings but i've always wanted one so you know i certainly i certainly would not be against that game getting remade someday but and that i promise you that is not any kind of don't read into that of anything other than you know mike the pinball fan likes that game like that's not a clue or a hint as whether we are or are not going to ever make that game. You know, I couldn't say, but I I think it's a great game. So both of those games are fantastic games. Like that Tron in my basement is never, ever leaving. It's one of my all-time favorite Stern games. Do you, do you have an LE or is it the, the Pro? I just have a Pro, but it's like fully modded out with the, the, with the lights. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the lights and the ramps. I got the little Tron arcade game and the Flint. You know, all the good, important things that took that game from really good to great you know all that eye candy that makes it what it is yeah speaking of Tron, you know i never put a lot of time on it but my buddy just picked up a really nice one and uh he was really really upset he he actually nicked it a little bit when he was moving it and Mm -hmm. and i don't know if you've seen the prices on tron but i mean is you know oh they're crazy high yeah it's like if i didn't love the game so much i'd sell it just to get some work done in my house (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh, he was like, man, I'm never going to be able to find like a cabinet decal. And, and I, I knew somebody that actually had some spare parts. So I was able to get the decal for him. But yeah, I, so I went to his house and actually got to play it some because I, I maybe only played Tron maybe a handful of times. And and I was like, holy crap. Now I know why people are paying so much for this thing. It's it's a blast. Like this thing's awesome. It, it really is. And do you know what's funny is if you were to write the rules to that game out on paper, it will look like people will be like, wow, there's nothing to that game. It's super like it looks shallow on paper, but it's not because the game is so challenging that those that rule set is the is the perfect rule set for that play field. It's like it didn't need anything more than it had. It was the perfect blend of like the number of things to do and the challenge based on the geometry. It's like it's absolutely I wouldn't change a thing about that game. I don't know what it was and, and I hope they get to do this again, but Borg and Lyman had this special thing going on. I don't know what they were doing with that walking dead, but walking dead is maybe the most perfect, you know, code to lay out ever with how you can stack those multi-balls. And there again, on paper, it's like, okay, you just got to kill so many walkers and get through these modes and, you know, no big deal. But 
when you when you get that stack going and you're like just crushing yeah. everything i don't know that there's anything that feels better <laughs> like it's just an amazing game yeah you know what uh walking is a fantastic game in it but geometrically it's not my favorite play field it's not it's i'm not knocking it but it's not my my favorite one to shoot but man, it's not as good as tron probably as far correct as, yeah, yeah yeah that's what it, that's kind of what i was going with, with yeah that. but man did the rules really just bring them it brought the everything out of that play field you know what i mean it brought all the goodness out of that play field was the because of the rules it really you know it put a spotlight on what was really cool about that play field and the, you know, those guys hit a home run with the mix of those two things but it should be noted that Tron was a collaboration between Lyman and Lonnie. It wasn't just Lyman. They, they, those guys, those guys split that game up pretty equally. Huh? Interesting. Okay. Well, it turned out great, but yeah, the the flow of Tron and and the, the toy in the back and is just outstanding. Yeah, and, and and the theme integration I thought was top notch on that thing too. And uh, I'm a huge fan of both of the Tron movies, which helps you know too because I'm just like. I'm way into it because it's like, wow, they nailed it with the theme integration from the movie. They did, but man, some of those stand-up targets are deadly. I learned that. Oh, they're super deadly. And, and, and I can't think of a harder shot in pinball, that, but yet more satisfying than that gem shot. That's the one, like you hit it with the upper flipper. Yeah, it just barely can go by like the, the Yeah, like it's like, man, that tells you what kind of day you're having because either I can nail that thing or I can never get it. You know, there's like no in between for me. Yeah, yeah, I would love to own it, but at, at current prices, I think I'll wait on that vault maybe. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I hadn't got it in a trade years ago, like I wouldn't have one now. I couldn't I couldn't afford the to get one on the secondary market with today's prices. Yeah. Yeah. That's my problem with the, a bolted twilight zone because it's like, I, I got it, you know, years ago and it's the one Bally Williams I've kind of kept. And I was like, I can't afford to rebuy it at this point. You know, yeah, I had, I had one of those for about 20 years and I sold it a few years ago and I don't miss it, but man, I certainly enjoyed the 20 years that I had it, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. I, I wish I would have bought an indie when I bought it just because I, I would never have anticipated the, how much indie went up, you know, it's, uh, it kind of just kept going and going and going, you know, as of late, it's just unobtainably expensive. That game, like I liked it a lot too, but in a league setting, it really exposed it for how weighted it was. Remember when I was talking earlier about oh, the thing, the yeah. thing is multi-ball in that game. Like nobody played the modes on my game when we, when I would host our pinball league here, um, everybody, it was just multi-ball all day. And then it kind of, that kind of, soured me on the game a little bit i'm like all right well there's just one way to really play this if i want to blow up the scores you know yeah it's true if it wasn't such a great theme and for me twilight zone's the same way it, it wouldn't really have a place in a lineup you know from a from, yeah. i mean compared to these modern games and i mean 27 modes and stranger things it's like how do you compete with like that level of depth and and you know when you think about that's one reason I never bought Attack from Mars was because can I could usually get to the end of the game like on location or at a friend's house. So yeah. I was like, I, I love the game. I just don't, you know, I don't want to put that kind of money into it, especially before the remakes and everything. And then when Stranger Things came out, it's like, yeah, it's similar, but it's not that close to Attack from Mars. I, I don't think. I think the shots are a little more dangerous on Stranger Things. Um, I would agree. Yeah. And the level of depth is like double or triple. I mean, you know, as far as how deep the game goes and, and the mini wizards and just the assets and everything, it's like, boy, you know, when you look at uh, old school attack from Mars and stranger things for the price, like it's hard to argue where the value is, you know? Oh yeah. I mean like 
you know, you'll see the end of the game in Attack from Mars, like you said, pretty quickly. And then Stranger Things, it could take you ages to get all the way through everything that there is to do in that game. And even still, there's so many different ways to approach uh, how to, you know, trying to get big, maximize your points in Stranger Things that it doesn't really ever get dull. And what I think was really important to us when we had that much, that many modes, we had to be really mindful of not to make it feel like a grind or wood choppy to get through the game, you know, like. I think I'm really proud of I, of the pacing on Stranger Things. I think we really nailed it as far as like, there's always something a little ahead of you that's desirable and like a milestone like event. And it never feels like a true grind or you're chopping wood to get to it. Like it feels kind of natural evolution of like, if I'm playing well and I do these things, I get these rewards along the way. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's it's hard with pinball because there's always, if you're working your way to a wizard mode or something, you always have to do a little work to get there, but it's like, well, how much work do I have to do? Because if you're trying to beat Lord of the Rings and you got to collect those, like you bail out of return of the King and you don't finish that multi-ball, you got to get those souls again. And that can get a little wood choppy if you're trying to, Oh, for sure. Yeah. If you're trying to finish the game, but in stranger things, you're really only at most three shots away from another mode. And they, you know, they they kind of randomize. One thing I like about it is like the demodog modes I, you know, those don't really feel like they're, they're dangerous, but they're, they can be worth it. You know, um, maybe you just need to finish it to get that next drawing for like the 11th, uh, drawing for extra ball or there's always this strategy with what you're doing. And I like to line up the uh, Demogorgon, uh, what is it? The second one and the fourth one are multi-balls. So like, I'm always consciously like, okay, you know, you could look at the game like, oh, it's really only got one multi-ball, but it actually has lots of other multi-balls. It just, it's just how you utilize them with everything else that's going on. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and that was, we were, that was very much by design of like where we spaced out those multi-balls and we didn't want there to feel like too many or too little. And, but also like, we didn't want to just have like, here's where you start multi-ball one and that, and that's multi-ball two. Like we kind of mixed it up a little bit by having them be modes that were multi-balls versus like this is just where you lock these balls or that's where you lock the other balls, you know? Well, hopefully I'll see you at Southern fried. If not, I'll definitely be at expo. Please. If you go like find me for sure. All right, Mike, man, I really appreciate you taking all this time. Uh, It was was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah. Anytime, man. And I'll, I'll see you soon. All right, cool. I'll talk to you later. So there you have it. Big thanks to Mike Venacore and Zach Sharp at Stern Pinball. I had a blast talking to Mike. That original runtime was over three hours. We talked music, vinyl records, and wrestling. I edited it all down to a much more shorter pinball digestible focus size. If you're wondering why no Stern Insider Connected or Godzilla talk in this episode, well, this was actually recorded before Southern Fried Gaming Convention. A work injury and move delayed the edit, but be on the lookout for another episode way sooner than later with some familiar faces and voices from the part side of the industry and potentially another episode lined up with a former Bally Williams J-Pop team member. Wish me luck on that one. Until next time, I'm Matt Morrison for the Pinball Show interview series.